we go. 38, ver- 38 chapters, one sermon. <laughs> Hope you all brought lunch with you. That's right. Yeah, that's right. All day revival. There we go. Let me tie a couple things together for us real quick. Uh, In our journey through the epistles of John, we talked about how we find assurance for our salvation, right? Um, One of those particular ways in which we find assurance for our salvation is through the overcoming of sin. Um. As we overcome sin, one of the, the way we overcome sin is essentially learning and basically learning and being enlightened to the character of God and then subsequently conformed to the image of Christ. We, we learn who God is. We learn His character and His promises. and We learn about Him through His Word. And then in that process, we are conformed to the image of Christ and then subsequently overcome sin in our lives as we become conformed to the image of Jesus, we overcome the sin that so entangles us in this world and entangles this world itself. And how does this happen? It happens in multiple ways, but I think primarily this this idea of overcoming sin comes as we understand and know God largely through the revealing of Himself through His Scriptures, through knowing Him and His Word and how He objectively, or how he has chosen to objectively display himself and to to reveal himself, to talk about himself. And let's think about this for a moment. If the God of the universe has chosen to talk about himself, then we are obligated to listen to God who talks about himself. We are privileged to hear God talk about himself. We are privileged and honored and graced and shown mercy when the God of the universe reveals himself to us in his word. So what is quite interesting, I didn't, did not plan to do this, but God and his sovereignty certainly did. We study the epistles of John thinking, how can we find assurance of our faith? And one of those is overcoming sin through knowing God in his word. And then now we are jumping back to the Pentateuch uh, to study through the first five books of the Bible. And basically the theme that we're going to see throughout all these books is, is the God who reveals himself to man. And what does he say about himself? We saw that last week, that God displays himself, displays his character through his creation. That... In his creation, we see that God is holy and that God will certainly judge sin. We also saw, though, that God is wonderfully merciful as well. And then we also saw that he is a sovereign God. So if we think about how do we, how do, if we think back to, to the epistles of John, if we're going to think through how I find assurance in my faith through overcoming sin, I'm overcome sin as I know God, and, and what's wonderful is now as, as, we ch- as we journey through the Pentateuch, we're going to talk largely about how do we, who is this God? What do we know about this God? How is it revealed? What is revealed? And then we need to be asking the question consistently, how do I live in light of this revealed God? How do I live in light of the, the fact that He is a sovereign God? What's the appropriate response in my life in light of the fact that He is a merciful God? Or the fact that He is a holy God? What does that demand of me? Because if if I'm being made into the image of Christ, who's the exact imprint of God, then as I see God and His character, then if God is at work in my life and He's making me into the image of Christ, that ultimately is the image of God. Not that he's making us into gods, but he is making us into the image of his son. That we would display his image. That we would bear the image of God for all of creation to see. And that doesn't just mean the fact that we have intellects or we have 
emotions and feelings or whatever. It, it means that we live as God lives and we think as God thinks and we act as God acts and we speak as God speaks and we desire holiness as God is holy and we desire and display mercy as God is merciful and we live in light of His sovereignty. So what is our response? And we saw our response in the beginning of Genesis that it is indeed faith and obedience. It's not been, it's not the Old Testament is where, well, you obey by the law and you're right with God because of the law, although the law has a very huge part to play, but it's from the very beginning, it's been faith and obedience. It's a faith in God and then a subsequent obedience to that faith in God. The obedience is a result of that faith in God. It's the same thing in the New Testament. A lot of us, we just have this kind of, dividing point, well, that's how God did it in the old, and this is how God did it in the new. I don't have time to explain this, but the, those of old in the Old Testament were saved through Jesus Christ as well. <clears throat> but it was a foreshadowing of Christ. We can talk more about that later, but certainly don't have time to, to talk through that today. But it was through faith and obedience. So what is our response? So what I guess part of what I'm saying here is, What's awesome is that I don't just leave the epistles of John in the dust or the letters of John in the dust. Start piecing parts of the Bible together, right? And as you begin to piece these, you will. It's 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 not like your growth and knowledge in the Lord as you begin to piece parts of the Bible together is not addition. It's not growth by addition. It's growth by multiplication. Does that make sense? So you're not just adding 2 plus 2 equal 4. It's more like 2 times 2. Well, that's 4 too, so that's a bad example. <laughs> so it's not like 10 plus 3, and you get 13, right? It's like 10 times 3, and you get 30. How about that? I did that to make some of you all feel better. It wasn't me. <laughs> wow, that's a bad example. So I encourage you, don't leave. How, how does this fit in with the epistles of John? How does this fit in with what we studied in Colossians and we studied in Ecclesiastes and, and we studied in various other places? So this week, we're going to continue journeying through the Pentateuch and finish up the book of Genesis. This week, we're going to be tracing basically the same themes that we did in the first part of Genesis concerning God and man. But this week, what we'll see is that God kind of focuses in. Instead of being broad, like creation, broad, he, He's going to focus in. And He's going to focus in particularly on, I've got a little bit of a ring. Ring, ring. There's a ring, ring when I talk. There we go. Do you hear it? I hear it. If you pull me down this hair. It will drive my ears nuts all day. There we go. That's better. That's still there. Never mind. <laughs> All right. What else was I saying? Uh, that God is going to zoom in and displaying these characteristics of himself. He's going to zoom in. Instead of being this broad uh, display of it via his creation, he's going to zoom into his people. He's going to choose for himself a people. And then through those people and among those people, he's going to begin to display his character and what kind of God he is and kind of God he's going to be. Now, I know that in our culture, even in our church culture, not necessarily this one, but church culture at broad, the idea of fairness and equal opportunity for all is essentially a God. It's become an idol that we think worthy of worship, that that life must be fair, and, and we even teach this to our kids, right? You know, if one kid gets a treat, that means the other kid must get a treat too. I mean, is that the way life is? No, it's not the way life is. I had a professor one time in, in uh, a seminary. It was uh, Dr. Randy Stinson. He was one of the leaders of the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and, and he uh, was teaching a class on leadership, particularly as it pertained to marriage, and and family, and talking about how he had kids, uh, he has like, I don't know, 20 kids or something like that, maybe seven or eight, but he's got a bunch, a lot of them are adopted, and then 
And uh, anyways, he, he's a real, real cool guy and a uh, real, real neat guy. And anyways, he's talking about how it's the first time I'd heard of this concept. He said, I brought my kids in and, and I had Skittles and I, I gave Skittles to one kid and not the other. And the other kid got upset and well, daddy's, that's not fair. That's not fair. And he says, you know, well, kid, life is not fair. And I, just because I gave one of my kids a Skittle doesn't mean I have to give my other kids a Skittle. Uh, life's not always that way. And, and I know us as parents uh, are going, <gasps> you know, oh my gosh. Um, life isn't always fair. And nor does it necessarily need to be fair. But God doesn't operate on our feelings and inside our box. Instead, we see God chooses to work through some people and chooses to not work through other people. This is not just a New Testament idea. This is very much an Old Testament idea. From the very, very beginning, the first thing I think we see here in in light of today's sermon, is that God has always worked through the elect in order to display His character. He has always worked through the elect in order to display His character. When I say the elect, I mean those whom He has chosen. Those whom He elected. You elect one president, and therefore you choose to not elect the other president. I mean, you don't get both. You choose one or the other. But when we think of elect, or when we think of choosing, we don't think of fairness or equal opportunity. The reality is, though, each person's evil heart, when we think about the world in general, each person's evil heart will get exactly what it desires. What is the evil heart of man desire. It desires a life where it can perceive itself as the eternally existing God that it pretends to be. That's, that's kind of the, base, the basis, the basic foundational understanding of what does our evil heart want? It wants to be God. And so when God chooses one but doesn't choose the other, those whom God does not choose still get what they desire. And it's to perceive for all of eternity that they indeed are God. When in reality, they're not God. But then God, at the same time, not because of any deservingness on man's part or those chosen their parts, God will choose some to worship the only true God and to be lights to the world pointing to the only true God. The reality is this, guys, because I know election tends to rub some of us wrong. The reality is, is he chose Abraham and no one else. And if we don't like that, God did it. He chose Abraham and chose... This, this wasn't like Adam. I choose you, right? Adam. You're the only one there. No, there was plenty for God to choose from. He chose Abraham. God has always chosen by His own volition or His own choosing a people to be His own, and in doing so, He has not chosen others. Now, I want to remind us, before we get too far along, that God didn't have to choose anybody. Right After the flood, it all kind of goes down the pooper again, and God says, you know what? I'm done. Give them what they deserve. Instead, he chooses Abraham. He chose then through Abraham a subsequent people to do a work in that would unmistakably be the work of God. To do something in these people for many, many millenniums that only could be attributed to the work of God. If you remember back from the series, and some of you were here and some of you weren't, but if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to our Gospel and Kingdom series. We, we saw that really the greatest event outside of the cross was the covenant made with Abraham. 
Because it was this covenant that began a story that would change this world. I want to remind you, I want to read for us, remind us, and kind of start us off in Genesis chapter 12. If you want to grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll be bouncing around like like we were last week, and we'll continue for the rest of this series. But Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, he says this, this speaking of the Abrahamic covenant, says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We understand what the Abrahamic covenant leads to then we should praise God for those three verses. So what happens is Adam and Eve created to be God's people in God's place that was the garden under God's rule and subsequent blessing. They fall, they fall hard. Then the world continues to divulge. Then Noah is saved through the flood But yet corruption continues. And now with Abraham, God begins a story. One that doesn't involve the destruction of all of humanity. But one that involves instead the surgery to remove a cold, God-hating heart with a warm, God-worshipping and loving heart. And that is the story that begins with Abraham. God will take this heart. And he says, you know what, I'm not just going to get, we're not just going to go back to the way it was in the garden. We're going to go back to a place that's better than what it was in the garden. Instead of having a heart that can fail, I'm going to give you a heart that cannot fail. I'm going to give you a heart that will love me forever. A heart that will desire me above all else forever. See, Adam didn't even have that heart. And he says, through my son Jesus, I'm going to give you a heart. And, and at this point, Genesis chapter 12, he begins This story of saying, I will bless the world through the redeeming of my people, through the work of my son, Jesus. And Abraham, it begins with you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will make you a great nation. I will curse those who curse you. And yet all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I don't want to minimize the blessing just down to this single event, but the very fact that God, through the line of Abraham, would one day reveal himself in an exact imprint of his very personhood in his son, Jesus Christ. The fact that God would reveal himself to a people in a man is a blessing. for Even for those who would eventually end up in hell, it's still a blessing for this earth to see Jesus Christ. The exact imprint of His Father. So we see God begins the story with Abraham, and then we see the unfolding of the character of God through His people. Understand that we cannot simplify the acts of God just down to... What has God done on this earth? No, what God has done on this earth, it always comes from who He is as God. It always reveals who He is. Always reveals His character. You see, the pinnacle display of God's character, particularly His mercy and grace and justice and holiness, we see is through His work on the cross and then the redeeming of sinners through His work on the cross. Such a beautiful display of our God. Now, instead of seeing God's character displayed on a grand scale, again, the text kind of moves us in closer to see God's work just among a people. And we will begin to see God's character displayed here exclusively through and among His chosen people. 
The second thing we see is that God will display His holiness and judgment on sin among His chosen people. Now, I don't want to give the impression that God doesn't do anything anywhere else, but God, through His Word, has chosen to reveal to us His doing and His character revealing that He does among and through His people. And just like last week, we saw the display of God's judgment, His character, sorry, the display of God's character concerning His judgment and holiness. We now see this display of His character concerning holiness and judgment among His chosen people. Genesis chapter 19, let's read 23 through 29. Genesis 19, 23 through 29. It says this, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, he was, she was behind Lot, looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Again, bear with me. So much to say as we work through this, but we're just, again, we're just flying high, okay? We're just hitting some of the high spots. We're just hitting the peaks of the mountaintops. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is what we see here. Displays God's holiness and judgment among His people. The Sodomites were living sexually dishonoring lives. I mean, they simply were not the people of God. They had no desire to be the people of God, so they did not live like the people of God. They did not love God as God's people love God. But God judges their sin and destroys their city, and yet, in the process, He rescues Lot from the city. And in somewhat of an action, saying, My people are to be separate from this ungodliness. My people I will rescue from this unrighteousness. I will do this work in their lives. So we see the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, displays God's holiness and judgment. But then we also see as the story unfolds that God's people will internalize God's holiness. That God's people will not just display God's holiness, but will internalize God's holiness. God's people must remain distinct from the nations that surround them. If God is going to display His holiness and His justice and His judgment on sin among the world, He's going to do it through a people, and it's not just going to be from their external actions. It's going to be from inside of these people. It must be internalized. Genesis 24 1 through 4 says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred, and take a wife for my son, Isaac. See, God's people were not to marry the Canaanites. Why? Because they worshipped other gods. And God knew that if they were to marry into these situations, that, the, that His people would struggle with holiness and being set apart as they would begin to worship these other gods. And we'll see much more of this once we get to Leviticus. But we see God's people being set apart. And God's direction, God's command to not marry outside of their tribe or outside of their people, particularly the Canaanites here, was, was towards God's goal of restoration. 
it was not just a law for the heck of a law. It was not just a don't do this for the heck of don't not doing this. It was, it was for their protection. It was for their good. The law was for their good. These commands, of course, we don't have the law yet, but the command was for their good. And so Christians, I just asked this question. Do you have a concern for God's holiness? Is something that wells up inside of you? Do you have a concern to displaying God's holiness? And I did not ask if you have a desire to just be moral. Now certainly morality comes from God's holiness. But if you just have the desire to be moral, then you can bend and mesh that and kind of fit that morality to your own desires. But if your morality comes from the holiness of God, then you don't get to choose what is moral and what's not moral. And God does. So... Do you have a concern for God's holiness? Like, 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 does that pervade, like permeate your thoughts throughout the day? Just think about that. When was the last day that you gave thought to, am I reflecting the holiness of God? Then, let me ask you this, to think about the last time that holy actions came out of a heart that desired holiness without having to actually think about it. As distinct from just doing righteous acts because I, I've always done righteous acts. But these righteous acts are coming consciously from my desire for the holiness of God. Because see, we live in a culture where we just do good things because we just do good things. We're just good people, right? The problem with that is that that changes and molds as the culture changes and shapes and molds. But are we consciously as God's people living holy lives. Because God is beginning to reveal to us that His people will begin to live separate and distinct lives. Second question, do you have a desire for the people around you to reflect God's holiness? Do you have a desire for the people of God, or the people around you to reflect God's holiness? Both the people of God and those who are not the people of God. Like, do you, do you think God is so worthy of worship that those around you should be worshiping that God? Like, they should be displaying His holiness. Is that, do you see that? You see them and go, ah, my God is so worthy of worship. I want to see that person worship God and display His character. Both in the church and outside the church. You know, maybe, maybe you don't. Because maybe you've not experienced the holiness of God. Could be other reasons. Just, just a thought. So God's people will internalize God's holiness. And we begin to just see this picture painted here. It's not super clear yet. But we begin to see this in Genesis. Then we also see that God will display His holiness through His people as He restores His holiness in them. So God will display His holiness through His people as He restores His holiness in them. So again, this God's command to not marry other nations was part of God restoring, a part of God's restoring work in His people. Again, it wasn't just a command for the sake of a command. It was God saying, here, let me help you be holy. Don't do it. Don't tempt yourself. Stay away from them. Don't give yourself into that kind of relationship where it's going to be tempting. Don't do it. Clearly we would see later on he talks about not being unequally yoked. We see that in the New Testament. Why? Again, the same thing. What would, a, what would a righteous person have with an unrighteous person anyways? You don't see anything the same. And if you do, it's probably because you're not righteous either. Because you're not a child of God either. But be set apart. You should be thinking differently, loving differently, caring differently, have different affections, things or affections that are stirred by different things. Your affections should be stirred by the holiness of God, not by the unrighteousness and filth of this world. 
He's saying, part of my restorative work and bringing you back to be my people is don't be tempted by giving yourself to marriage to those who do not worship me. There's other, I want to, to kind of broaden us a little bit here. You know, God's word gives us many motivations for godliness. Um, there's a real helpful short article by Kevin DeYoung where he just kind of talks about motivations for godliness from 2 Peter. So I'd encourage you this week to go read 2 Peter. I'm just going to read through a handful of these from the list from 2 Peter. Motivations for godliness, for holiness. From 2 Peter, from chapter 1, verse 4, I'm just going to go through these real quick. You won't have time to write them down. But we make every effort to grow in godliness because God has already set us free from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Number two, we grow in grace so we will not be ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, we pursue Christ-like character so we will not be blind, having forgotten that we were cleansed from our former sins. Number four, we work hard at holiness in order to make our calling and election sure so that we will not fail. Number five, we practice these godly qualities so, that, so there will be richly provided for us an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Number six, we walk in obedience to Christ because those who wander into sensuality are condemned and will be destroyed. Number seven, we are serious about holiness because we believe God knows how to judge the wicked and save the righteous. Number eight, we turn from ungodliness because those who revel in sin are ugly blots and blemishes, irrational animals, and unsteady souls, and accursed children. Number nine, we pursue holiness because sin never delivers on its promises. We pursue holiness because those who live in their sin are again like those returning to slavery, returning to the mire, and returning to vomit. Number eleven, we pursue holiness because all our works will be exposed on the last day. Number twelve, we pursue holiness because whatever we live for in this life will be burned up and dissolved. Number 13, and finally, we pursue godliness so that Christ might be glorified both now and to the day of eternity. So we think about holiness and God's display of His holiness. God's people should be displaying His holiness. And if we are God's people, we will increasingly display God's holiness. I will remind us, though, in the midst of all of this, that God will complete His good work. If God began the work of holiness in your life, then He will finish that work. Philippians 1, 6-7, just very quickly. And I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart and you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. He says, Those, He who began a good work, He will finish it. Understand that we must pursue holiness while always trusting that he who began a good work will finish it. If God doesn't, guys, if the work of holiness doesn't continue in your life, then it was never a work of God, but simply a deceiving work of self-righteousness. God will continue that work if he's the one that began it. Paul doesn't say there's any exception here. He says that God will finish what he began. So back to assurance. How do we know if we are saved, well, are we walking with God today? If you are not walking with God today, then you likely were never saved. But if He began that good work, He will finish that good work. And I mean this to be, at this point, mostly an encouragement for us, as Paul meant it in Philippians, as an encouragement that God began His work back in Genesis, and then through Abraham, He began preparing a way in which His people could be set free from the sin that entangles us. And that He who began this good work, and those of us who are following Christ, He will complete that. So yes, we work hard at holiness, but we understand that it's God working in us, and that He who began it will complete it. So understanding who we are and balancing that with our responsibility, God's work, our responsibility. 
He's redeemed us. He's doing it. He'll complete it. Our responsibility is to pursue it, to love it, to live it, to know who we are and live in light of who we are. So God displays His holiness and His justice among His people. Guys, you can just search these scriptures to see other examples of God's holiness among His people. But for that, we'll move to the next point. God displays His mercy among His people. Through and among, displays His mercy among His people. God displays His mercy on His people. I'll give you a couple examples. God was merciful in remembering Lot and his family during the destruction of Sodom. Was that not mercy? He could have said, you wanted to go live among those filthy people? You'd be destroyed too. God clearly remembered Abraham. God remembered Rachel, Jacob's wife, who was barren. God clearly remembers Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was barren. You know, second, God's work done among His people is only because of His mercy. Just like today, in Genesis, none of these people deserved God's mercy. Like Abraham did not deserve the mercy of God. Just like Noah, you know, Noah is still counted as an evil man, but he had faith in God, but he was still evil like the rest of the world. But God continually shows us that his people can do nothing without him and that we are dependent upon his mercy. Go back and read this week, chapter 15 of Genesis. Here we see God's unconditional covenant with Abraham. In this covenant, God is the party that will carry out the whole covenant. It's God who will do it. There is nothing that Abraham can do on his own. God must be the one to start, continue, and finish the covenant. Even as we think of covenant as a church, and as we affirm three new members today, Guys, our ability to keep the covenant is dependent upon God. Our ability to live and and our opportunity to live uh, in covenant relationship with each other will only happen upon God's mercy. And when we begin to fail at that, it is because of our own evil choosing. But God and His mercy is the only thing that even makes our ability to agree to do Christian things with each other and reflect the character of God to each other. It is only by His mercy and His keeping. Understand, right? Because it's Him who is doing the work. When we talk about membership covenant and we talk about how we live together as the body of Christ, that's a part of God's work. That's us reflecting the character of God. And He's the one that's doing that work. And it's only by His mercy that He's doing that work in us. So if we're going to keep our covenant with each other, it's only going to be upon and by the mercy of God. So Genesis chapter 15, go look at that this week. Genesis chapter 22, think about God's calling of Abraham to sacrifice His only son, uh, well, his, His only son through Sarah, that is, Isaac. What happens? Abraham faithfully follows God's command. Right? He takes him and goes up and Isaac says, Daddy, I see the wood and the altar. and Where's the sacrifice? But what happens? It's God who provides the sacrifice. God's mercy is displayed to Abraham and he shows Abraham that only he, as God alone, can provide the sacrifice for his people. We also see that, another thing to take note, I should say, is that God's people have always been redeemed by this grace and mercy of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Most of us should know this passage. For by grace you've been saved through faith. 
It's not of your own doing, but it's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For by grace you've been saved. It is through the mercy of the cross and the election of sinners that we are redeemed. You see, the cross is the pinnacle display of God's mercy. And here in the beginning we see the evidence of the mercy of God. We just see shadows, right? Just, just shadows of what's to come in Christ. And here we see God providing a sacrifice for Abraham that's just simply a shadow of the sacrifice, the greater reality that he will display in the cross through Jesus, his son. We see God showing us in the calling of Abraham to sacrifice Isaac that God will be merciful and sending his son Jesus. And then for us to ponder this morning in response, I wonder how many of us display the mercy of God. Let's think about this for a second. Just reflect for just a moment. How many of us display the mercy of God? You know, you can't display the mercy of God until you've experienced the mercy of God. And so many of us don't display the mercy of God because we've not experienced the mercy of God. And many of us haven't experienced the mercy of God because we don't think we deserve the mercy, or deserve, sorry, we don't think we need the mercy of God. We're good on our own, right? Self-righteous, self-atone, I can handle this by myself. The reality is we all need the mercy of God. And we can't be an instrument of God's mercy until your life resides in the merciful hands of God. You recognize His hands as mercy. I want to read to you a, a spoken word from a beautiful eulogy. Uh, it's a wonderful thing on the mercy of God. Let me read this to you. I want to try not to read it like he reads it because that might just be funny. But uh, he says, Are you merciful? Why? Because Jesus healed the sick. Because Jesus fed the multitudes. Because Jesus gave legs to the cripple. Because Jesus granted sight to the blind. Because Jesus opened the ears of the deaf. Because Jesus found prostitutes and tax collectors and drew them into to the sphere of his love. Because Jesus touched the untouchable and loved the un unlovable and forgave the unforgivable and welcomed the undesirable. Because Jesus even now saves the otherwise unsavable. Why? Because they deserve it? When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done in righteousness, not because we met Him halfway, not because he took the pro we took the proper steps forward and in good faith have elevated ourselves to the place of the, of the deserving poor, but according to His mercy. We are here because Jesus Christ didn't say with cold indifference, give them what they deserve. They brought it on themselves. Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. And seeing us in our misery and need, He doesn't just feel for us. He takes the necessary action to relieve our distress. He leaves the eternal glory of heaven and the perfect fellowship of the Trinity he condescends to us, lives among us, suffers like us, and dies for us. Do you understand this? Have you experienced this? How then is it possible to experience it and not display it? It isn't possible. You haven't experienced it if you don't display it. The mercy of God. Next, God's sovereignty is displayed in His unconditional election of His undeserving people. And, and I would tag on there his, and His subsequent work among His people as well, if you wanted to add that to the end of that line. His display of the unconditional election of His undeserving people and His, that would include the work He does among His people, not just the fact that He goes, hey, I like you. But the fact that he works among those people is kind of the, the gist that I want you to see here. Once again, God's, God's plans are only theoretical at best if he doesn't have the power to actually do anything about them. Right? We saw that last week. 
God's plans are just, they're just good plans if God can't do anything about them. But God is sovereign. Guys, God could not have a people of His own if He did not have the power to choose them and draw them out of this world. Think about that for a second with me. If God was not sovereign, if He did not have the power to remove us from the entanglement of sin that we live in, this could not happen. For many of us, our view of God practically looks like this. In the Old Testament... He desires to have a people, and so he devises a plan to save a people, and then he waits around to sit who and sit and see who's going to choose him. Right? God just kind of twiddles his thumb. Is it going to be Isaac, or is it going to be Ishmael, or is it could it be Abraham? Maybe someone from the Canaanites. Maybe maybe they'll choose me. Same in the New Testament. God desires to redeem a people, and so he sends Jesus down on the cross, and now he sits and waits at our sovereign hand for one of us to choose him. Is that what happens? I don't think so. Examples of God's sovereignty that we see. God chooses Abraham and not his brother Nahor. Go back and read it. Should have read it before this morning. God chooses Abraham and not his brother. God chooses Isaac and not Ishmael. They were both sons of Abraham. God chooses Jacob and not his brother Esau. It's not fair. I'll let you judge God's acts. Think about God's sovereignty is displayed in the story of Joseph. Joseph makes his brothers mad. They sell him into slavery among the Egyptians. He's given a dream by God. Same dream as Pharaoh. He's, he's given the opportunity to influence Potiphar. He then essentially gains absolute authority in Egypt and then stands in authority over his brothers when the famine comes. I mean, there's so much more to that story, but just see the sovereign orchestration of events and then hear what he says in Genesis 45, 7 through 8. And God sent me before you, this is, this is uh, uh, Joseph speaking, God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, speaking to his brothers, his family. It's not you who sent me here, even though you're the one that put me in the slavery. You're the one that captured me and sold me off. But it wasn't you, though, who sent me here, but God. It was God who did it. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You did this, but it was God who sovereignly controlled and planned this event. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. Again, Joseph talking here. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God orchestrated the events surrounding Joseph's life in order to accomplish Many things. One of those being to show the world that he is ultimately the one in control. To show the world that he will preserve his people by his hand. Even at the hands of unmerciful, sinful people, God will still do his plan. To show the world that he will use evil for his good purpose. There's many things that we see in the story of Joseph. But notice just the sovereign work of God. I wonder if we often forget the sovereign orchestration of events that God has done and is doing in our lives. Do we just can I just go through life and go, oh yeah, that happened today? Huh. <clears throat> you know, I, I find myself oftentimes in conversations that just are absolutely pointless. Because like, there's so much more glorious things for us to be talking about. 
like the sovereign work of God? What is he doing? Like he didn't, he didn't cause that event to happen and plan that event at your workplace or with your kid last night or, or with that driver. Or, you know, what, he didn't just do that for the heck of it, for you just to kind of brush over it and go on with life as if... No, he, he meant that. By his sovereignty, he planned that to work for your good and your perseverance. <clears throat> See, the thing is, most of us, the only time we take the time to sit down and evaluate God's sovereign orchestration is when it's a major life event. I lost this family member to cancer, or I lost my job, or, you know whatever, but we don't sit down and think, God's given me an opportunity here to be faithful or to not be faithful. What would He have me do? He's teaching me something. He wants me to reflect His character here. Everything, the words that come out of our mouth, the opportunities we have to speak, whether to each other, to a co-worker. I mean, it doesn't mean that every time we talk to a, a co-worker that, you know, we need to quote the book of Romans to them, but but like, are we using it purposefully? Or is it just, eh, whatever. No, reflect, what is God's sovereign work around your life right now? What is it that He's doing that you're just oblivious to? You know, this is one thing that I like from Henry Blackaby and his book, Experiencing God, is we, we so times want God to come like do a marvelous thing in our life when the reality is, is he's doing marvelous things all around us. We just, we just got to open up our eyes. Just got to open up our eyes. So do you see the tough, strenuous job that you may have as being orchestrated by God or you, do you just see it as something to get away from? Do you see the sinful behavior of your child as being orchestrated by God? Or you just see it as something that just happens because they're a kid? Do you see the preaching of God's words as being orchestrated by God in order to display His character? Or is it just something we do on Sunday? And do you understand that God orchestrates things for your good, for those who are loved and are called according to His purpose? He does. So then the question is, do we think about God's character in Genesis, and more that we can say, but for now, our response should be, again, same as last week, obedience and faith. Obedience and faith. Let's reflect on this for just a few moments. What is man's typical response, though? It's not typically obedience and faith. Or it is, rather, but not obedience and faith as it should be. Let's, let's think about this for just a few moments. Faith in self and subsequent obedience to self is our typical response. Faith in myself and then obedience to myself is our typical response. Just think about this. Who has the better plan? Who sees the situation more clearly? Whose happiness is more ultimate? Ours is. And that tends to be what drives us. We think we have the better vision. We think we have the better plan. That We think we have the better uh, assessment of the situation or of my life. And, and our happiness tends to be that which we most greatly desire. And so what happens is we place faith in our plan and then submit ourselves to our very own self-created Godhead. Like we look at ourselves and go, I am God, I've got the plan, and so I'm going to put faith in myself and then exercise obedience to my will. That's our typical mode of, of operation. Some examples. Well, I know that if I spend my time this way, it will bring about happiness in my life. What about how does God want you to spend your time? How about money? How would God have you spend that money? And thousands of other examples. Don't just limit it to time and money. 
But faith in self and then subsequent obedience to self is our typical mode of operation. But in Genesis, we see that the rightful response to the character of God is faith in Him and obedience to Him. I mean, just very quickly, think about Abraham. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, go, I can't get pregnant and God's going to bless the world through our offspring. We're going to have to devise a plan. So I have faith in my plan, and I'm going to be obedient to my plan. So Abraham and Sarah, and, and he goes and, um, oh my goodness, what's the uh, servant's name? Remember? Hagar. Hagar, that's right. So goes and gets pregnant, and here comes Ishmael, and, and God says, no, 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 no. You had faith in your plan, but this is my plan. And my plan can only be accomplished by my power not your power. Genesis would say we should respond to God in faith and obedience. We're called to trust that God is who He says He is and will do as He says He will do. We're called to forsake all other allegiances for the allegiance to the only true God. Abraham forsook his allegiance to himself in order to place his faith in God. Paul tells us that Abram was justified by his faith and by faith alone. Romans 4, we read this earlier. I'll read it quickly now. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Guys, Abraham knew God and obeyed God. He trusted and exercised faith. And that was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So he says, Abraham says, God, I trust that you are who you say you are and you will do as you have said you will do. I trust you. I have faith in you. And this was counted to him as righteousness. And the question for us today is who will you trust and place your faith in? See, many of us, we think the the event of placing your trust and faith in Jesus was that one time you said a prayer in a church. But who are you trusting and placing your faith in today? I'm not saying you're saved, now you're lost, you're saved, now you're lost, you're saved, now you're lost. You, you all know, I, I don't think you can lose your salvation, but, but uh, if you're still a follower, if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to struggle still each day with who are we going to place our faith in. Who am I going to place my faith in in this situation? And, my, and the danger is that many of us, the default is ourselves and not God. Otherwise, we would probably search the Scriptures more. Guys, faith is not something we choose to have or not have. Instead, faith is something we direct toward that which we deem most trustworthy. You don't have faith or not have faith. Everyone has faith. The atheist has faith. Instead, faith is something we direct toward that which we deem most trustworthy. The battle really comes down to whether you will place your faith in yourself or you will place it in your God. Genesis paints this picture and says you're stupid if you place it in yourself instead of God. You can't read Genesis and see this picture of this God placed and think that you could even remotely begin to rival the worthiness of placing your trust in yourself versus this God. Let's go back and read Romans 4, 13 through 25 real quick. I'm sorry, 16 through 25. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, and the presence, presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith. Hear this. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was 
as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. This story gets real good, right? But for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Just a few comments here in closing. The promises of God rest on grace and his mercy and have been granted to us Abraham's offspring. Think about Abraham. He had hope in God. He did not weaken in faith, even when the circumstances would have swayed most of us otherwise. Now certainly we see Abraham and this whole Ishmael thing, but, but ultimately what we see is then God comes to Abraham and says, no, that's not the way, this is my way. And, and Abraham continues in faith in God. Ultimately, the, the big picture here is that ultimately no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. That's what Paul tells us. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promise. Again, this is what Paul tells us. This is why it was counted to him as righteousness. And again, this counted to him as righteousness was not just for him, but for our benefit as well. And righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, God, who raised Jesus from the dead. And that he was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, the holiness of God the mercy of God is displayed among God's elect as we place faith in God's promises and His work on the cross. And it is then counted to us as righteousness. So as we place our faith in God, He works in us. And He works in us to bring that faith about, certainly. As we exercise this faith and begin to live and display the character of God, it is counted to us as righteousness. As we place our faith in God's promised work through His Son, the Son's righteousness is counted as ours. You hear that? As we place our faith in God's promised work through His Son, the Son's righteousness is counted as ours. And then we live and display the righteousness Christ. So my question still stands. Who will you place your faith in today? You? Yourself? Or God? That's the question we have to ask ourselves every day, multiple times a day. Am I placing my faith in myself, in my spouse, my job, or do I trust that the God of the universe is worthy of my trust. He's worthy of worship. Not us. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to teach your word. And Father, I pray that in our hearts, in our hearts that, that we would just see that we are not worthy of worship, but Father, you have revealed yourself in such a way that there should be no question who's worthy of worship. It should not be debated among our hearts. It should be obvious, but yet, Father, there is still debate. We still do sin. And Father, that's where we certainly, among other places, but that's where we certainly trust that that you who began a good work in us will continue that good work. And our responsibility is to fight hard and run the race, knowing that it's you who guides our steps, it's you who gives us breath, it's you who gives us bread, it's you who gives us water, it's you who gives us affections for you. And, and Father, I, I just pray that we would fall in love with your character, that I even today would fall in more, more in love with who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be and how we should live 
in light of that. So, Father, just, uh, just thankful for, for your revealing of yourself today in your word. And, Father, we're going to spend some time here covenanting together as we welcome three new members. And, Father, I pray that, that even this passage, as we delay singing and reflecting for just a few moments, that these thoughts would not just vanish from our minds, but that your word would permeate our week. Father, uh, we love you, and it's in your son's name we pray, amen.